Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Our guest tonight was the first coach to win major silverware with an Australian national football team guiding the Matildas to the Asian Cup title in 2010. As well as two stints in charge of the Aussies, he was snapped up by world number ones, the US women's team, and is now in charge of the New Zealand football ferns. And there's a whole lot more in between. Today's trailblazer is Tom Samani. I got the eye of the Samani, welcome to you. How are things in the land of international football management? Things in international football management at the moment are very, very quiet, particularly <laughs> on-field things. I, um, I haven't been to New Zealand since February 2020, and I haven't seen my players since the middle of March 2020. So, yes, been all quiet. The players are probably <laughs> delighted. <laughs> Why is it so hard to get the players together? You're currently in charge, of course, of the New Zealand women's team, the Football Ferns. Is it because they're spread over not just a couple of continents, but several? Yeah, I think we're in a fairly unique position compared to virtually most teams in the world. Australia, slightly in the same position, although their situation has been eased a little bit by the fact that virtually all of their players are in Europe. The, the problem that we have is that we have players literally everywhere, US, Europe, all parts of Europe. Australia and New Zealand, uh, predominantly staff in New Zealand. So for us to actually get people together and travel is extremely difficult. Then to travel back is even more difficult. So we're basically in limbo at the moment. Normally you'd obviously spend a lot of time over in New Zealand. You haven't been able to because that uh, so-called bubble as we speak is not uh, actually a running occurrence. But you've got players who are playing in the in the W League here and you've seen a few of them throughout the season and some of them in finals football as well. How important has the W League been for them or would you have preferred them to go to the European Leagues? No, under the circumstances, the W League has been fantastic for the players that we've had in it because most of them are young players just kind of getting the first taste of international football, travel, playing competitively in a national league, etc. So a couple are a bit more experienced who have had sort of settled lives in New Zealand, if you like, and already done the travel to Europe. So the fact that they can come here and play has been really beneficial. And you said the last time you had them together was last year. That was the Algarve Cup, yeah. correct? Um, how much would that squad have changed heading into the Olympics? Probably not much at all, to be honest, because the real challenge has been not so much your established players that are playing at various clubs because you know what they are doing and you know what you get from them. The real challenge has been the real lack of opportunity 
to see any other up-and-coming players because they just haven't been able to do anything. So are you coaching via Zoom or are you just a Zoom expert on communications? I'm just a Zoom expert. I'm a <laughs> Zoomster um, these days. But you're not, you're not really doing any coaching because you can't. We've, got, you know, we've tried a few teams on Zooms, but we've literally got players in almost every time zone in the world. So... <laughs> You know, if I'm going on at 7 o'clock in the morning, somebody's on at 11 o'clock at night, players are on during the time they're training or they're not on because they're training, etc. So, you know, we've had, we, we do our best with that, but it's really, it's not the best, but, <laughs> but we just do what we have to do. It is what it is. It's the COVID phrase, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> you had some devastating news about uh, New Zealand defender Rebecca Stott in a battle against stage three Hodgkin's lymphoma back in February. Uh, our thoughts, of course, are with Stotty. And while her personal fight is obviously much more important than, than football, she is an important part of your defensive setup. How's the rest of your team? Are you looking at losing any more players prior to the Olympics or is everyone else fighting fit? Touch wood, everybody will be fit and healthy. Um, you're always concerned that you, you might have injuries leading into the, the games. Uh, Rhea Persico, who's playing in the WSL at the moment, has a bit of a calf strain. Well, hopefully that will be cleared up well before the Olympics. And, you know, you just hold your breath and hopefully hopefully not get one of those calls when, the, you know, the player said, oh, something happened to my knee yesterday at training. So, And particularly for a squad like New Zealand, because we're not blessed by a huge amount of depth in the squad. And then again, by not being able to see any other players over the past year, it becomes quite difficult if we end, you know, get hit with more injuries. You sound very relaxed uh, about the approach. I suppose there's no other way to be, really, is there? You can't get tense about it. But uh, how are you approaching the Olympics? Are you hoping ultimately to have a couple of uh, friendly matches, perhaps here in Australia? Well, that's part of the things that we're looking at at the moment is the potential to have a couple of games in Australia if the bubble's open. There are still some some challenges with that in the sense that, uh, you know, from an Australian perspective, they've got to bring literally a whole team back to Australia with the quarantine rules, etc. So, and, you know, you're at the, the mercy of an outbreak at any minute kind of thing. So that that's a challenge. The challenges that we have is that we have players in America and players in Northern Europe who will be in the midst of their season at that time. And because it's not a FIFA window, we won't get them released. So there'll be probably... 40 to maybe even 50% potentially of the players going to the Olympics that wouldn't be available for that match. And they'll be players that I'll literally only see in Tokyo. Well, I hope they turn up in good form, Tom. <laughs> I hope I recognise them and they're in good shape. <laughs> as far as the Olympics go, how about logistical planning? Is it just too hard to put that in place at the moment? What do we know apart from when the draw is? We don't know much, to be honest. <laughs> you know, the, the latest word out is that that teams, from our perspective, we have a we have an arrangement with a little town called Atsugi, a little satellite town in Tokyo, from last when the last Olympics were supposed to happen, that uh, they were going to host going to host our men's and women's team for ten days, so we're looking to head to to Tokyo around the fifth or sixth of of July. The there's talk that you can come into the Olympic bubble five days before your first game. And then, obviously, as soon as you're out of the competition, then, a bit like a, a World Cup, then your, your team's sent home, as opposed to staying to the end of the Olympics.
Yeah, it's going to be very strange indeed, and we're not sure if we'll have a, an opening ceremony and, as you mentioned, not a, a village per se either. But, Tommy, as a whole on women's football, and you've been in charge of a national team since you first took over the Matildas, and I'm going to tell you that was 27 years ago. <laughs> How far uh, do you feel that women's football has come in that time? I was only 12 at the time. <laughs> of course. <laughs> it, like, leaps and it, it's It's a, a different world. It, it, you know, you just can't really envisage where it was back then to where it is now. The first time I, I took charge of the Matildas was the first time that national team players didn't actually have to pay to play for the national team. So that was kind of the, the first step. It, well, it wasn't even the Matildas then. Yeah. <laughs> so that was kind of the first step. And that was quite a significant step, you know, because prior to that, players literally had to pay their own way. So you played New Zealand and international and Auckland, you paid your $1,500 for airfares, hotels, et cetera, et cetera. So that was the first step. And, and then as it's gone along, it's, it's really made enormous strides. Uh, I think sometimes when you're in it, you don't appreciate how quickly it's come along. And it tends to go along for a bit, and then it jumps, and it goes along in a jump. And I think there's been a jump in the last probably three or four years, a huge one. In as much as... Uh, you respect the professionalism and the skill level that that professionalism brings. What are your feelings on those those players that did the hard yards, the ones that, that fought so hard to play and paid their own way? Well, it's important, I think, that you don't forget them. It's important that, that they get the credit and the, the um, acknowledgement of what they did for the game at that time. You know, when I went into the game, it was literally all volunteers people who put their heart and soul and, and in, into the game, time, effort, energy, probably money, and, and with little recognition and little praise. And, uh, and I think it's, it's really important and it's something that, you know, I think our game does much better in traditional countries, Europe and South America, as remember that history. But I think it's something that we should do probably a little bit better here so that we appreciate the ones that came before. So when we speak in 27 years' time, how much further do you think the game will have progressed? Will we be looking at a world where women's football mirrors the men's game? I won't really care because I'll have forgotten everything by that <laughs> stage. I'll, I've almost forgotten things that I did 10 minutes ago now. So 27 years' time, I think I could be battling. No, I think, I think now that we've got... The, I think now we've probably got the first stage of professionalism. You know, I think we've had part, bits of professionalism during my second time with the Matildas and up into 2012, 13, 14, 15. But I think probably in the last four years, that jump has seen the, the emergence of the, what you call the, the truly professional player. The ones that are starting from a young age, get into the professional game and have a good likelihood of being a full-time professional right throughout their career. I think when I, you know, do, during the early mid part of the, the 2000s, it happened in spurts and you had little spells but leagues either went bankrupt or there wasn't enough money in it or it was semi-professional whereas now particularly uh, with the emergence of Europe and European clubs and big clubs taking an interest in the game I think you're now starting to see what will truly be you know professional women's football. Well, Tom Samani has been coaching in the national team set up for almost three decades but he also had a playing career before that. Next up we head back to Scotland. You're listening to Trailblazers with Stephanie Brands.
Zealand women's national football team head coach Tom Samani is our trailblazer today. Tommy, born in Glasgow, still evident slightly in your accent. Uh, what did your childhood look like? Um, probably like most childhoods when you're brought up in a um, working class area in Glasgow. At, at that stage, Glasgow was a fairly blue collar, heavy industry, um, quite a tough city. <laughs> Uh, it, it was kind of starting to change as I got older, as heavy industry died a little bit. But yeah, that's what it was. You And football was what you did. You played in the street because there were very few of any cars in the street in those days. You played until your mum and dad called you in and it was dark. And then you went to school the next day and played during playtime, played during lunchtime. And yeah. Um, yeah, and that's kind of how it was. It was the classic jumpers for goalposts, wasn't it? It, it was classic <laughs> jumpers for goalposts. Still a teenager when you were picked up by Albion Rovers. What sort of player would you have described yourself as? <laughs> uh, I was in t- <laughs> Well, I can be honest or I can just tell lies. <laughs> I, don't know. I was an attacking midfield player, probably. I think they call them a number eight or a number ten these days, but I don't do numbers that well. So, um, uh, I was, yeah, I was an, an attacking midfield player. I wasn't a particularly big guy. I was quite mobile. Scored a few goals, so I was that kind of person. Used to get kicked to death back in those days. Used to struggle in the mud when you sort of <laughs> played in the middle of winter in the rain, and it was big muddy grounds, and the big guys could sort of plow through it, and you were sort of trying to pull your boot out of the mud. So that's yeah, the kind of player that I was. And you had, essentially, you had two paths to try and be a professional footballer. You either signed uh, what they called a schoolboy form, and then went on to an apprenticeship. Uh, when you were 16 to 18 and did like an apprenticeship and that they, when you turned 18 the club either decided to sell, sign you as a professional or release you or the pathway that I took where you became a semi-professional player you played in what they call non-league which is called junior football in Scotland and then you kind of get picked up with a small club like Albion Rovers uh, played part-time with them uh, did a teaching degree and um and then they used to sell a player every year to sort of fund the club. <laughs> um, so I was there, I think, for four seasons before I got sold. I went there, I think, at 17, 18, then got sold, I think, at 22. 151 appearances for Albion Rovers in, in that time. Then Blackpool, Torquay, Dunfermline, uh, probably among perhaps a couple, a couple of others. Did you have a favourite? A favourite club? It's a good question. I mean, you kind of, when you think back now nostalgically, <laughs> Albion Rovers was a was a was a great club because you were learning your profession then. The game was different, and you had a whole mix of players. So you were a young guy coming into the team, and you had the older guys that were more cynical and and had been at that level and weren't going any further. And you, you had a real mix, and it was more a life experience at that time. I had a lot of affection for for Torquay. I um, enjoyed living down there. I had probably some of my best spells of football down there unfortunately hampered by injury and um and, and it was a great place to live so uh, i sort of uh, enjoyed enjoyed my time there as well you talk about uh, growing up with the cold weather and and the mud and all that sort of thing and then you decide to move down under uh, you couldn't have been coming to different weather what made you decide to make that move it was interesting I, i've kind of you know people talk about all these days about planning i've, I've never planned one thing in my life actually <laughs> forward planned anything in my life my life has kind of just stumbled along in different directions and I was playing in Dunfermline I'd, I'd had an off season in New Zealand and I'd come back to the UK 
I left hockey and then I was playing for Dunfermline and just about to sign a longer term contract and I got an offer to come out to Marconi and uh, it was a guy called Doug Collins. I played with Doug and, and Mike Hickman who I'd known from, from Torquay and they contacted me and I met with them and, and I just, just the opportunity sounded good. I was I think about 29 at that stage and I thought Dunfermline, Sydney, you know, I thought, <laughs> why not? And uh, but I had no intention to come to Australia to live, you know, and we're 34 years later, 35 years later, still here. It just seemed a good opportunity at the time, and it turned out to be a great opportunity. Well, you went to Marconi, and then you kept on moving. You ended up in, in Canberra. Now, was that also a lifestyle choice? You taught down there as well. I did. No, that was... So what happened at Marconi is that after my first season there, Doug Collins left and um, got the sack actually and, and he got the job at, at Canberra so I was kind of a bit torn to be honest because Marconi were fantastic to me and they were, they were a good club looked after me really well but Doug was the guy that brought me over here so I kind of felt a loyalty to him and he, he wanted me to go to Canberra and, and that was the choice for me to go down there and again I think it, in hindsight it's turned out you often wonder sliding doors what your life mm. would have been like if I had stayed at Marconi because, you know, f from a, a football perspective and even a financial perspective, Marconi was actually probably a better option at, at that time. But I just felt uh, that, you know, Doug was the guy that, that brought me out here and put faith in me to bring me and wanted to take me to Canberra. And that was the reason that I ended up going down there. You talk about not planning any of the moves in your life. Uh, does that drive your wife completely mad? No, she's, she's, <laughs> I've been very fortunate that way. Well, firstly, probably because she's glad to get me out of the house uh, as much as possible. And because I make moves at different times, she tends to follow me a bit later. So I get out of her hair. <laughs> she's been fantastic because, you know, we don't have any children. Uh, and she enjoys, the, you know, the different opportunities that we've had and, and life opportunities and moving opportunities and, and being able to live in, you know, various parts of the world and, and some fantastic places. But I think most of all, you know, when you go back and experience, it, it, it's about the places, but it's also about the people and the connections you make with people. And that, that's been, for me, if I look back, that's been probably the thing that I value most. Indeed. And in, in Canberra, it wasn't just playing. Canberra, Croatia became a player manager. Mm. Was that your first foray into coaching? That was my first foray into coaching. <laughs> I kind of fell into it because I was like the older, I ended up playing for, six years in various guises of the Canberra team. It changed ownership and eventually became Canberra Croatia. Terrific club. Canberra Croatians love the football and, and really looked after us and the football team there. And um, I was the captain. I was the oldest player and, and all the stuff. And But it was just a natural next step to go in as a player coach, which I found extremely difficult at the start because you uh, just the balance of being able to actually not go on the field as a coach but actually just put that hat out of the way and go on as a player and then obviously when you go into management the, there's always a degree of conflict with players that are selected and not selected so mm. you've got a whole range of things <laughs> bubbling about in your head and, and particularly in the initial stages I've, it was very difficult for me to focus on just playing just the football bit and separating the other bit but I think it was a great learning experience and I think just that step into coaching was great because it was at a time where you, you did everything. You know, you had to be involved in 
all the parts of the club. You know, my life now is so much simpler in the sense that you've got so many people around you doing lots of different jobs that you had to do back then. So, uh, you know, when I look back, I think it gave me, uh, you know, a great stepping stone into, into coaching. Well, you stuck with it. Australian schoolboys, uh, not long after that. Australians to your sport and then on to Westfield Sports High and Sydney Olympics. So a lot of men's teams to start your career before you moved into the women's game. What were the the main learning experiences you got from your trajectory through the, the coaching ranks? Well, the first thing I got is that you suddenly realise that you're not in charge of everything. That <laughs> 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 you, you know, you think, I, certainly I did. I don't know if others do. You, again, as a young coach, you think, you know, this is what we're going to do. Everybody's kind of going to follow that. I, this is my team. I'm going to be able to do this, this and this. And and, and you're just going to have a free reign to do it. Then suddenly find you've got a board of directors to deal with. You've got, you know, all these other outside bits to deal with. You suddenly find that, you know, players actually don't do what you want them to do. <laughs> um, or, you know, all the other stuff in the job. And I think that's, you know, those first few years are really critical in, in trying to learn the actual skills of management. Because we all go in with a, a degree of knowledge on, on the football sense, but it's the actual management sense and, and all the parts you've got to deal with that are generally what either make or break you in a coaching career. Uh, and, and those are the things that, I, as I say, I was fortunate. I went in at Croatia, who you know put a lot of faith in me and, and kept me there for three or four years until I got another opportunity at Sydney Olympic. Uh, and that, that was a really good place to sort of learn my trade. You saw a lot of uh, guys come through that ended up in the national team. And uh, who would you have the fondest memories of, of seeing them go through to the big time? Oh, fondest end. I mean, obviously, you know, we had Ned Zellick back mm. there. And, and just seeing him, you know, he would be probably without doubt the best male player that I've ever, ever worked with. And he was a teenager and a, it's a typical teenager. He, he was kind of up and down and on and off the field kind of thing. But his actual football and ability... Was, was just outstanding. It, you know, he, he, I mean, he had a stellar career, but he could have had a, an even greater stellar career. That's not great English, but <laughs> uh, you know what I mean. The, the injury kind of hampered him near the end and, and a couple of other things, but uh, he was just a, an outstanding player. Um, with Joseph Simonic, who ended up going off to obviously play <laughs> with uh, Croatia instead. Again, another extraordinarily talented player. Really, you know, players that... I don't see enough of these days. It just had that point of difference. Well, in 1994, Tom Samani moved into women's football, taking over the Australian national team. And next up, we talk Matildas. You're listening to Trailblazers with Stephanie Brands. Zealand head coach Tom Samani is in our studio today. And, Tommy, 1994, you took over the Australian women's team. It wasn't the Matildas then, was it? It was not the Matildas then. The Matildas came, I think, in early 1995. We we wanted to try and get a bit of publicity for the team. And, you know, and as all Australian teams seem to have a some kind of <laughs> nickname of sorts. So we had an, a little contest of whatever in, through SBS about picking the name of the women's national team and Anna Matildas came out on top and to be honest I don't know how many people took part but it won by a long <laughs> chop it, it won significantly and there wasn't any real other <laughs> names in the in the hunt to be honest um, and I remember I was driving from Canberra to Sydney in the pouring rain with one of those big telephones you know like a brick in those days <laughs> just passing collector when we made the decision 
call them the Matildas. Uh, to be honest, I wasn't overly fond of the name at first, but I think it's turned out to be a brilliant name. How did you end up coaching the Aussie women? So what happened is that I was coaching, I had a couple of different stints at the time. I was coaching in the men's programme at the IS with Ron Smith, but I also got an opportunity to go up to Sydney Olympics. Sydney Olympic had just sacked Bertie Mariani halfway through the season, and they called me to take over the team to the end of the season. And Ron said, yeah, it's a great opportunity to go up. So I went up there to the, the last 10 or 12 games of the season. So the Olympic season finished and I had a, a, an option whether to stay on at Sydney Olympic, go back to the AIS. And then at the same time, the women's job came up. And the women's job came up predominantly because at the end of 1993, women's football became an Olympic sport and Sydney got the Olympics. So virtually overnight, women's football became eligible for about a million dollar a year funding. Mm. So they wanted to put a full program in place. So it was really the scope of the job that, that appealed to me because we had to put in national team program, we had to put in the NTC programs, hire staff. So it really just appealed to me to be in at the start of something and to be able to put some things in place and to be able to, you know, try and sort of grow the game because, as I say, women's football at that time was very much an amateur sport. Cast your mind back. Who were the stars of, of your team in those days? Well, Cheryl Salisbury had just come into the team as, <laughs> well, a, as, as a kid, as, as a kid, <laughs> a young player. Angela Yanotta uh, was one of our good players. Sonny Hughes, striker. Alison Foreman, who's been over mm -hmm. in Denmark for many years, another outstanding player. And I'm going to get into trouble because I'm going to name players and forget players that were probably very, <laughs> very good. Katrina Boyd, mm -hmm. another Sonia Gegenhuber, Cooper. I've, I've done quite well remembering lots mm -hmm. of names. You, you've yeah. done very yeah, well no, indeed. We, we had a great group. Of and, and as I say, the, the thing from them that overnight, uh, the national team players went from having to pay for the, to play for the national team to having it for free and getting free gear and things like that. So, you know, it was a big step forward for them and, and they were just delighted to go away with the national team and, and go on tour. You had two stints, of course, in, in charge of the Australian women and in 2005 you'd take them over again and in that second stanza, if you like, would take Australia to their first major silverware in either the men's or the women's game. Before we touch on that, tell me about the part in the middle. If I read the timeline right, uh, you went from the national team to San Freccia, Hiroshima, Canberra Cosmos, San Jose Cyber Rays, New York Power, Sarawak, and then back for a stint at Westfield Sports Hive. I got that correct? Yeah, you've done better than me. I don't think I'd have remembered that. Yeah. That's what Wikipedia is for. Yeah. Yeah, I, I left the Matildas in the first stint because I got an offer to go and coach in the J League in Japan, which was, I felt really sad about leaving the job because we just kind of got it established. And, but it was, it was kind of an opportunity I couldn't refuse. And then did two years there and then got an offer to come back to Canberra Cosmos and, and come back there. And then after a couple of years with them, the first women's professional league was starting in the US and, and I got uh, approached to go over there. So I went over there. Sadly, it went bankrupt after three years. And when I came back to Australia, the men's national league had virtually gone bankrupt then. So there was no real football in Australia. And I got an opportunity to go up to Sarawak as a kind of director of coaching role. So like sometimes in the coaching job, you, you don't have options what to do. And, and I went up there and it was, it was actually a great little place. 
Tell us, though, you started off, as I mentioned, uh, with men's teams, moved into women's football and, and had a, a sprinkling of both throughout that period. What is the main difference between coaching men and women? I think that the, the main difference is in the management, not not so much in the football. I think it's a really good exercise for all coaches to, to have the experience of coaching a women's team because they do give you different challenges. You know, some of the challenges is that women will be impacted by things that won't even be on the radar for men, that women will want information and absorb information and uh, and remember information. That's a, that's a lethal <laughs> one that we've got to uh, make sure you're, you're aware of as a, as a guy because you'll, you'll just, you know, off-the-cuff comments sort of don't cut it at times. And, and, and male players, and this is a very, very generic statement, you know, male players will be quite happy if they're in the team at the weekend and if you don't talk to them for the rest of the week or the rest of the year, they're probably <laughs> not concerned. Female players will want much more. They'll invest more. They'll want more feedback. They'll, they'll want to know more things. And they'll, they'll generally be more curious and, and they'll want to know more ways to improve. Whereas kind of your average male player will probably think, you know, they don't need to improve that much. <laughs> well, Tony Gustafsson is the new head coach of the Westfield Matildas. Uh, he's set to meet his players for the international friendlies coming up in about a week. He's inheriting a team that you saw start, the likes of the Sam Kerrs and the Caitlin Fords, who came through as, again, kiddies. What made you spot talent like that? Do you remember Sam Kerr starting her football yeah, career? I do. I remember. Her first game was against Italy in Canberra. She came on as a sub at, at 15. What we were able to do then, we went in, when I came back for the second time, that's literally when we moved, we were literally moved into Asia about six months after that. So we really had to, to change and rethink how we did things because prior to that, Australia was seen as a tough, competitive kind of team, but not a team, not a skillful team. Mm. Not a team that's likely to win games, but teams that, but a team that would be awkward to play against. And we had to change that mindset because we had now qualified for World Cup against the top Asian teams who were ranked higher than us. And in some cases, you know, at, at that time, China were up in the top four or five in the world. Mm. Japan were ranked higher and North Korea were ranked higher. So we had to change kind of what we thought and how we played and how we developed players. So we had to do it in a football sense. We had to do it in a mindset sense as well that we wanted to be a team that was competitive in world football. We were fortunate that we had a group of coaches. We had a great programme, full-time coaches in all the states. We had fairly thorough under-17 and under-20s programmes who had to go into Asia to try and qualify for underage World Cups. And we had a group of coaches that you know, had were very different in character, temperament and how they coached, but had a similar view on what we needed as players and a similar view on who we'd seen as good players. I know that sounds really simple, <laughs> but it's actually, it's not. And so we had all those things come together. And at the same time at that, we had a golden little group of generation of players that came in to the system. And we were also able to give them opportunities because we did play games. We played games that were... If you like, almost behind closed doors, under the radar a bit. We had senior games that were A, internationals, etc. So we were able to actually bring in players and give them opportunities. Much, much harder to do that today. So we were able to then work with a bigger squad and, and give them the, those players the opportunity. At the same time, around probably 2008 to 2011, quite a few of the senior players sort of started to retire. You know, Joey Peters, Gerald Salisbury, Alicia Ferguson... Dai Alligic, etc. So we had to start bringing those young players in. 
And because they get good ground in the 70s and the 20s and the programmes that we had in the States, we had good players coming into the team. When did you realise that you had a team that could actually win international silverware? And, of course, I mean the 2010 Asian Cup. The key moment for us, there was probably two. The 2006 Asian Cup, where we got to the final and lost in penalties to China. And the two th I think the 2007 World Cup was a turning point. We went to the 2007 World Cup without having won a game at a World Cup. And we won a game, we, we qualified for the quarterfinals. Uh, we took Brazil to a 3-2 game after we were 2-0 down after 10 minutes, lost mm -hmm. Cheryl Salisbury and things. So that tournament, I think, galvanised the team and galvanised the Matildas as such. And I think that, so that was the foundation. And I think after that, the players coming into the team knew that this was a team that we expected to win games and we expected to do well. And no matter who we played against, we always felt that we could beat them. So I think if I look back, I think that was the real critical moment. And then all these young players come in who never had a care in the world, who couldn't care less who they're playing against. I remember the first game in the 2011 World Cup, Caitlin Ford played against Marta and she didn't really even know who Marta was and couldn't have cared less who Marta was. And that was the kind of attitude th those young players brought into the team. So we had that really good balance of the senior players, the Heather Garriox, etc. And then we had these young players coming into the team and it was a, a really good mix. So I think all those factors together contributed to the being the team that then went on and, and won the Asian Cup. Because when you look at that Asian Cup, we went into the final without Lisa Devana, who broke a leg in one of the group games, and Sarah Walsh, who had a knee injury, who are our two most dynamic strikers at that time. So we had a defence with probably three players that weren't defenders. <laughs> <laughs> so there was just such a, a belief and a, a togetherness in the team that we felt that we could beat anybody on the day. You mentioned Caitlin Ford. She would go on to win the FIFA Young Player of the Tournament uh, in that World Cup. Now we're seeing her carve it up in the Women's Super League in England, as well as Sam Kerr. Did you, at that point, would you have said Caitlin was tagged to be the uh, the superstar that Sam's now become? With all respect to how yeah, Caitlin's that, performing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I think Caitlin probably came in just a little bit ahead of, of Sam at the time and, and was probably more, slightly more consistent you know, Sam was dynamic, but in the early days, at times, a little bit more erratic, which you normally get in young players. So there's a slight difference in them at, at that stage. But you're never quite sure, but we thought they had the potential to go on and be as good as they are today. Tom Smarney had a super run with the Westfield Matildas in Australia, and then he was picked up by the world number one side, the USA. That's next. You're listening to Trailblazers with Stephanie Brands. After another successful stint with the Matildas, you went over to the USA. What's that like, having the world number one side come and approach you to be their manager? I thought the interview had gone so well up to now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was, it was interesting. Look, it was different. It was very different to the Matildas in, in, in many ways. What had happened, you know, I had eight years at that time with the Matildas and we had a really stable staff, s stability in the programme. Although there was changes in the national team, the, the changes were stable changes. I had an organisation that basically allowed me just to get in and, and trusted me to go in and, and do the job and, and to basically run the women's programme. Different set up in the US, the, um, you had different staff, 
things were a bit more fractured. Obviously, this, the setup within the team was different with contracts and things you could do and things you couldn't do. So it it was a, a different environment. And, you know, hindsight is a, is a wonderful thing. And I think when people say you never stop learning, I, I think that's something that I have learned, certainly over the last, since actually going there and kind of thinking back on my time there. The, there were things that I should have done differently, quicker, that, mm. I, that I didn't do. And and some changes that I should have made, given that the type of job that it was that I didn't do, when I go back and think about it, that that's the feelings in my head. I, I work much better collaboratively. I, I'm not a kind of I'm not somebody that goes in and goes, right? You do this, you do that, da 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 da, and and then my way or the highway, yeah, that <laughs> yeah. kind of thing. And and to be honest, it's kind of worked for me 95% of the time through a variety of different clubs and different environments that I've gone into but it didn't work in, in this particular mm. environment and and based on that I should have made some changes probably staff changes and probably been a little bit more me in the sense that I think I try to fit in too much to what well this is how we do it in the US this is what we do mm. and I, I didn't do that well enough. With the playing group, is it different? When you go from being the boss at a, at a team who the country is delighted when they qualify, but it's not always, or it certainly wasn't then, the absolute expectation. Uh, with the US, they weren't expected to qualify. They are expected to win. That, that bit didn't worry me so much, to be honest. You know, people say, was it more pressure? And I said, well, not really, because when you look at the quality of the team you've got, it's... It's not more pressure. There's more pressure when you're on the opposition bench, to be perfectly honest. So I didn't, I didn't feel the pressure from that perspective. I didn't feel the pressure of, of expectation, to be perfectly honest. I, as I say, there was, there was things sort of within that job that I think back that I needed to do better than, than what I did. As I say, it didn't work out, you know. And, you know, I, I needed to manage the president better. You know, as mm -hmm. I say, I was, I'd come from a job where I was just allowed to go and do my job. And uh, when I was with the Matildas, I never met Frank Lowy. I, I met him at functions, but mm. I, I was never at a board meeting with Frank Lowy. I was never, you know, Frank phoning me saying what's happening with the Matilda. <laughs> I think I did manage to change things. Oh, I, you know, when you look at the the 2015 World Cup, there were, I think, five or six younger players that I brought into the squad that hadn't happened. You know, I inherited a team that... Um, it's probably smarter uh, that um, the previous coach had uh, Pia Pia Sunghang, where Pia virtually played a starting eleven team, and and that was the team, and they played virtually all the time. Some players came on and off, whereas my approach is very much a, a squad type of approach. So that was something that players had to get used to, but I, th you know, I think that was something that I I did quite successfully. And when you look at the fifteen model cup. That, that translated into some players coming into that. So there's bits and pieces, but again, you know, it, was, it just didn't work out. And when you say that, I know from speaking to a number of coaches that you're not a proper coach until you've been sacked. Yeah. Uh, would you have called it sacked or was it a parting of ways? Uh, no, no, it was sacked. <laughs> uh, yeah, Categorically. Yeah, yeah. yeah it was, did you uh, see it coming? No, no, nobody did, to be honest. Uh, it came completely out of the blue. It's interesting when it happened. So we played. We just played China in Colorado, and I'd gone back to the hotel, and I had a meeting with the president and the CEO, and I was I had 
some stuff to talk about at the meeting because the, the NWSL had just started, so that was part of the thing that was going on. And they basically just said, we, we don't think this is working out. We don't think the team is where it's at at, at the moment. And uh, that was it. But again, when that happens, you, you can either go, well, actually, you just watch the game <laughs> that we just played. <laughs> yeah. and, or you say, okay, that's what you're thinking. And then when I went back to my room, the first player that came up to my room was Abby Wombach. And Abby came up and said, look, she said, I had no idea that was happening. It's like anything. There certainly was people who knew it was happening. And I think there would be certainly people in the staff and around that, that knew that it was, it was happening. Didn't take you long to get snapped up again. You ended up being at the uh, 2015 World Cup with the Canadian team as a technical consultant and assistant coach. And then you returned to Clubland in the US. Mm. Uh, how different is the NWSL setup? You and I have had many conversations over the years about the college system and how wonderful that is for bringing talent through. How much did you enjoy that experience with Orlando Pride? Uh, look, it was good. It was good to be back different in a club environment because you're there your day to day. So... It, it was fun. It was a great club to start with. You know, the, it was Phil Rollins who started the club, did an unbelievable job to promote. So there was Orlando City, the men's team, who came into the MLS the year before, and then we came in Orlando Pride. And, and you know, the visibility of both teams in the city was, was huge. And, uh, and it, it was, so it was a great place to be in a football sense uh, and because of the, the profile of the team, etc. Uh, it was in a very well-run club, so you know it was it was really enjoyable. I know you're too humble to uh, say what sort of influence you had with players, but the sorts of players that wanted to come and play with you—not just the likes of the the Catleys, Kennedys, Devanas from Australia, but the Martyrs and and some big names from the the US team as well—you put together a formidable team. Was that part of the fun? Yeah, yeah, it was good to you know to get sort of like quality players and, and players that are used to winning and players that want to win and and um, and players that are, you know, high quality. Uh, I mean, Marta's just a, an unbelievable professional. Wants to train every day, wants to train every minute of every day in <laughs> training, um, wants to win every game that you play, uh, is a, a super footballer, just a football brain, barely ever made a bad decision and, and just a really nice lovely person to be around as well of course after that you moved on to the New Zealand team which is your current role now you're looking at uh, an Olympic Games in the very near future we hope and then potentially if the stars should align that way then you're looking at a side that's going to the World Cup what's it like to take over a team that you know will qualify for everything uh, <laughs> it's the complete other end of the spectrum <laughs> better than one that doesn't <laughs> uh, no it's good and, and it's so important for for New Zealand to have that pathway where they can qualify because that's the thing that keeps the sport alive at the elite level there and gives players incentive to keep to keep playing and um, you know I think the, the the real challenge for New Zealand is for us to be able to do stuff in between to make the team more competitive and and those are the the challenges now and, and it becomes particularly harder for countries like New Zealand you know ten years ago the the programs and, and the opportunities that New Zealand players had were probably as good as a lot of countries around the world. But now these other countries around the world have just gone full steam ahead, whereas New Zealand has now you know, basically stayed where it was or even found it even harder to put more resources into the game. So uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a challenge, but a good challenge. 
As we mentioned at the top of the program, uh, you are Australia bound, if you like, uh, just by virtue of the situation with COVID, has allowed you to see a lot of the W League here. Uh, just finally, we've got a, a final coming up and that's going to be between uh, Sydney FC and Melbourne Victory. You saw both semi-finals. You've seen a lot of the season. What are you expecting in the grand final? Probably, a se it's interesting, I've seen Sydney's last three games and if they play the same way, then I think it'll be a tight grand final because I think they've they've kept things really quite conservative in the last three games, which means that it's unlike the Brisbane victory game, that the final will probably be a little bit tighter. Winner? Um, <laughs> no comment on the winner. I, I think it's too tight to call. If the two teams play the same way they played up in Manly, I think Sydney will win the game. Tactically, if Victory approach the game slightly differently and their key players turn up on the day, then I think Victory can win. Tom Samani, despite not being able to catch up with your national team, I know you're a very busy man, so we appreciate the time you've taken to come into the Trailblazers studio. Thank you so much for the chat. Thank you.